The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Lori Byron. She is a pediatrician. She spent 27 years on the Crow Indian Reservation. Now retired from the Indian Health Service, she continues to work as a pediatric hospitalist in a private hospital and works largely on environmental issues while working on a master's degree from Johns Hopkins in energy policy and climate. She is on the Children's Health Advisory Committee to the Environmental Protection Agency and the American Academy of Pediatrics Executive Committee for the Council of Environmental Health. She is the co-leader of the Citizens Climate Lobby Health Team. She is the legislative chairperson for the Montana Pediatricians, and she received the American Academy of Pediatrics Native American Child Health Advocacy Award in 2005 in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Dr. Byron. It's an honor to have you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we should probably start by asking, how did you find the field of medicine? What got you involved in pediatrics in particular, and what led you to the Indian Reservation? Well, I think I grew up in a culture of service. My dad was a career military man, and my mother was inside the church any time the doors were open, and she was constantly feeding people and visiting people and raising money for missionaries. So it just seemed natural to go into a service field. And medicine just seemed like a great way to help people. Pediatrics is really exciting because you feel like you can work with people before they've gotten into their bad habits, that maybe we can work with parents and children and have them growing up healthy rather than trying to change their lifestyle later. Yeah. Well, tell me something. You must have seen some particular childhood adverse events on the Indian Reservation. What was it that led you to the Indian Reservation, and what in particular did you see there that you might not see elsewhere in the country? Well, I think my husband and I did not want to do fee-for-service medicine. We wanted to do medicine in a fashion where people weren't worried about how they were going to pay for it. Mm. So a system that's set up in that fashion was, was more preferable to us. On the reservation, there was maybe a lot more infectious disease. There were a lot of effects of smoking. I think one big thing that's different when you're working on the Indian Reservation is you're doing public health. And public health is a little bit different from just doing regular medicine. So we still would see a person one-on-one in our office and take care of the problem they had that day. But in public health, what you do is try and look at the big picture. So if you have lots of diarrhea or lots of obesity or lots of traffic fatalities, you try and look at what's going on in the community that might be altered so that you can improve the health of everyone. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that your focus is on pediatrics and now you're looking at climate issues. How did you make that leap? That's a great question. Back a couple years ago, the Lancet Commission came out with a statement saying that Climate change was the biggest public health crisis of the century. Two years later, they changed their messaging a little bit, and they said that the uh, climate change is actually the biggest public health opportunity of the century. 
And I think that really resonated with my husband and I both and led us to start pursuing more active work in the area of climate change. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. I interviewed a woman from the American Public Health Association who said, we're the first generation to really feel the effects of climate change. And we're the last generation to really be able to make a difference and change things. So I don't know if you'd agree with that, but it struck me. As a physician now looking at climate change and an opportunity, where do you think we should make the most impact? Where will we have interventions? Well, there's lots of areas that need to be altered. I think one of the best first steps, and other countries have found this also, is looking at putting a price on carbon, which is basically a tax for pollution. And that is happening right now. There's 100 countries in the world that are either already taxing carbon or are looking at taxing carbon. And we would like to see that America becomes one of those also. Well, that's good to know. And then how do listeners take this information and run with it? How can we help? We trust you. You're a physician. You've got insights into climate and health. And you're saying that, okay, this is a really important intervention. We need to put a price on carbon. Now what? How do we realize that? Well, I think there's lots of things that all of us can do just as regular everyday citizens. And one is just talking about climate. It has become such a politicized issue that a lot of people don't even bring it up. But in reality, over half of the Americans feel that there is human-caused climate change, and over three-fourths of Americans prefer to have renewable energy. And yet, we feel like it's a negative thing that we don't really want to talk about. So I think talking about it helps. I think talking to our legislators and letting our legislators know how we feel that we want to see action is a really important thing that we can all do. You've been involved with the Citizens Climate Lobby. Tell me about that organization and how we might get involved there. I'm assuming that the Citizens Climate Lobby is a great resource for people in terms of knowing the action steps, knowing the right asks. I always love legislative action steps that help me. You know, they they tell me when to call my legislator. They help craft messages that I can use, and then I can give it a personal spin. Is that what the Citizens Climate Lobby does too? It is. And there are a number of terrific organizations that are working on trying to get climate action in America. NCCL is one of them, and I do think they're one of the great organizations. They're a grassroots organization with eighty to 90,000 volunteers, and they very much have a laser focus in that they want to see a carbon tax enacted in America, and they want it to be fair to not hurt poor people. So they do. They teach the volunteers. We educate on issues with climate at our monthly meetings and at our national meetings. And they encourage people to take action. And some of that action is working within their communities. So talking with other people, giving talks in the community, writing letters to the editor, and contacting our legislators. And then there's also some of the group within CCL that meet with their legislators. That's great. I think it's really important for us to be trained in how to be good citizens. And I think, too, if we talk about things that are affecting us, certainly our mental and physical health as well, that can be a powerful way to get the point across. And I want to jump into that area now because I do have the luxury of having a physician on with me. How does climate change affect our physical and mental health through your lens? 
I'd say one of the ways that you and I would both be passionate about is nutrition. And pediatricians are very much concerned about nutrition because, of course, kids can't reach their potential if they aren't adequately nourished during their childhood. And there's a lot of things about climate change that's affecting our agriculture and the nutrition. One of those ways is through our grain crops. And what they've actually found is that when grains are grown at elevated carbon dioxide levels, that the protein content decreases. So they actually have a higher percentage of carbohydrate and a lower percentage of protein. And it's significant enough, it's about 6 to 8%, that this can actually lead to a couple different issues depending on where you live. In countries like ours, the high-income countries, where we have a lot of obesity, it can actually lead to a higher amount of metabolic syndrome when you're now consuming more carbohydrates than you are proteins. And this, of course, is a precursor to diabetes. And then in low-income countries where there's starvation, it leads to a more serious form of starvation called kwashiorkor when you don't have enough protein. And this actually affects your immune system. It's much more serious than just regular starvation. Yeah. When I first learned about how increasing rates of CO2 in the environment affected crop growth and then which plants would prosper and which ones wouldn't, I was really fascinated. I also read that there would be more allergen types, more ragweed, for example, more poison ivy. Now, I want to talk about something else that I know we've discussed in the past, and that has to do with reduced levels of micronutrients. And micronutrients fascinate me because I think that even in the United States, it might appear that we are well or overnourished. I would argue that many of us are actually malnourished on a micronutrient level. And if high CO2 levels contribute to decreased zinc and iron, for example, that we would see even greater levels of micronutrient deficiencies. Exactly. And zinc and iron were the two of the first ones that people looked at in large part because it is an easy to measure thing. And we already know that about a fourth of the world's population are deficient on zinc or iron or both. And those crops, like you said, that are raised with increased CO2 atmospheres are producing less zinc and iron. But then they did start to look at all nutrients and at micronutrients. And basically everything is lessened in these plants. They've looked at 130, I think, different crop species, and they're all mineral deficient. Wow, that is so interesting. And then the flip side, of course, are going to be the attacks on the plants themselves. So we would be wise to anticipate that there would be more crop pests. I know farmers here, in I'm based in Missouri, you're in Montana. Farmers here in Missouri say we are seeing pests that we never saw before, and that they're wanting to call extension departments in southern states because we know that they're migrating northward. And then I'm anticipating that the response to many of these diseases and pests will be an increased use of pesticides and fungicides, which create their own set of problems. So talk to me a little bit about crops and pestilence. Right. So the pests are sort of thriving better in the CO2 environment than the crops are. So the insects, the rust, the fungi all seem to be thriving. And they are undergoing what you just talked about. It's called a poleward migration, where in our hemisphere, they're marching further north. In the southern hemisphere, they're marching further south, and they're covering a larger swath of the earth. So what the farmers are seeing is is exactly right. We're just having more pests. And then the one thing they found that with a lot of these pests, when they're in that increased CO2 environment, they actually prefer the plants that are grown in the increased CO2 environment, and they live longer, and they lay more eggs, and the plants are less resistant to the attacks from these pests. Mm. So this is a big issue. 
Yeah. Well, before this program, I was looking through some pesticide and fungicide labels because I wanted to see what kinds of warnings were on them. And it was pretty frightening because there were many severe warnings that said, don't use this near water. This is harmful to mammals. This is harmful to aquatic species and birds. So if we're seeing more fungus, say, on crops, and the farmer automatically is led to using more fungicides, I'm concerned about vulnerable populations such as children who will be exposed to these higher levels of toxins. Right, and it's only been in the last couple of years that they've really been doing a lot of research on what so many of these chemicals are doing because there are so many different chemicals out there. And the effects on children, the effects on farm workers is also a big issue. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Lori Byron. She is a pediatrician. She has spent 27 years on the Crow Indian Reservation. She is now involved with climate issues, and she is working on a master's degree from Johns Hopkins on energy policy and climate. We should talk about the oceans. I think this is something that if we're not living on a coastline, we may not realize how much all of these ecological systems are connected. What's going on with regard to climate change and our coral reefs and oceans? So not so much the people in Missouri where you are or Montana where I am, but about 3 billion people in the world actually depend on the ocean for their primary source of protein. And we've already found that in the last 30 years, about half of our coral reefs are gone. And that is because of the heat that's been absorbed by the ocean. So most of the heat that's been put into the atmosphere over the last 100 years or so has been slowly getting absorbed by the oceans, and they are significantly warmer than they used to be. So the coral reefs are important, not just because they're beautiful, but because about a fourth of the fish species in the oceans start out their life as fish fry, tiny fish, in the coral reefs because it's a safe place to grow up, and their mortality is much greater when they're not raised in a coral reef. So there's a lot of issues with fish populations decreasing. And there are other reasons besides climate change. We're certainly overfishing. We certainly have problems with increased population now. We even have increased dust that lands on the ocean and that falls into the reefs and that can damage the reefs that way because we we have more drought. Wow. We should talk about mental health here because when I think about populations that are dependent upon fishing, not only for their nourishment, but also from a cultural perspective. You know, this is their lifestyle. And I'm thinking about populations in Alaska. I'm thinking about populations in Hawaii, where there are cultural foodways that are at risk. And I don't think we give enough attention to the mental health component of what happens when this cultural aspect of our food system is destroyed. Yeah, there's a whole host of mental health issues. And only in the last couple of years have people really started coming out talking about this issue. It was just a few months ago that the American Psychiatric Association formally came out with a statement on climate change and how it's an issue and how it's affecting our mental health. And they've actually put out a whole host of webinars and research papers over the past few months and couple of years. There's actually a whole new syndrome nowadays called solastalgia, and it's the sadness that many people feel when they just think about climate change. So it is a real issue. We know that heat increases violent behavior. It increases alcohol and drug abuse. And now we've been linking particulate matter in the air to a number of diseases. One 
is that dementia is linked to breathing in particulate matter. This is a tiny pieces of kind of like soot in the air that happens when you burn fossil fuels. Oh, how interesting. And now they've linked when a mother breathes in particulate matter, her future offspring that isn't even born yet is going to be more at risk for both autism and schizophrenia because of particulate matter. That is so interesting. You know, I love these reminders of how we are so intimately connected to our ecosystem. And it's so refreshing to hear a physician have awareness about those interconnections and be paying attention to that. So I want to thank you. What I learned, Dr. Byron, about climate change is that the first way we're going to feel it is through water. And that would be either too much or too little. And we've certainly seen these devastating effects in, say, Puerto Rico and Houston with Harvey. Talk to me about water and how we should be talking to our legislators, for example, about some of the health risks that come when we have too much or too little water. Right. Well, the first thing is that a lot of people don't realize that having warmer air increases the amount of moisture in the air, and that's the problem with the storms. So for every degree centigrade, I think there's like 4% more moisture in the air, and that makes the storms worse. So our precipitation events are becoming worse, even if the amount of rainfall you get every year doesn't change. You are getting it harder and shorter in shorter amounts of time. And that's, of course, an issue because you can have flooding if you're in the city. You can have flooding when you're in the country and you're a farmer and damage your crops. With Increase and decrease water, there are some definite health effects. One is when we have these flooding events, we actually are more at risk of outbreaks of infectious disease, especially diarrhea illnesses. A lot of our cities are set up where they have a combined sewer outflow system, and when you have more rain, you actually are dumping untreated wastewater into the rivers. Hmm. I remember seeing a horrible flooding incident in North Carolina. This goes to the industrial ways in which we produce our food today, but it was a hog confinement facility that had had flooding. And not only did the hogs die, they were in confinement, but all of those deep manure pits had overflowed, you know, gotten into waterways killed fish, contaminated water if people, you know, want to play in that water or drink water. So I think connecting the adverse weather events to the way we produce our food in terms of not only the healthfulness of our food, but also how are we set up in terms of resiliency when we have an industrial system in an extreme climatic event? Right. And those sorts of things, sadly, will become even more common. And that just points us more to what you and I, I think, totally believe in, and that is sustainable agriculture. If we have farms that start converting more to organic and sustainable agriculture, those lands are actually better able to absorb the water and save it for when they need it later. And you also don't have the issue with those huge manure areas like you do in an enclosed area, so that if we're using manure instead of fertilizers on our fields, and practicing sustainable agriculture, not only do we use less greenhouse gases, but we're actually absorbing some of the carbon from the air and putting it back into the soil, which would be a great thing. And as you know better than I, the crops are more nutritious when they're grown in that fashion. Yeah, this is a really important point in terms of this whole idea of carbon. 
that we look upon farmers as being stewards, not only of the land, but in helping us reduce some of the effects or mitigating the effects of climate change by being able to sequester carbon, say, with practices like cover crops. Every time I see a field that is left barren, and I learned this from farmers, actually, I realized that now I know to look at that field and say, oh, it would be so good to cover that with crops all the time so that we can sequester carbon. Right. And I don't know how it is in Missouri, in Montana, in the last 50 years, we used to have, we were about 18% topsoil and now we're about 1% to 2%. And basically topsoil is about 100% carbon. So if we get that carbon back into the soil, they can actually help with this crisis of having too much carbon dioxide in the air. And wouldn't it be wonderful if our farm bill rewarded farmers for these kinds of practices? If we had a farm bill that linked public health and climate all together with the way we reduce our food? It would be wonderful. And I think I have heard some proposals in some states, but I don't think anyone has done it yet. But absolutely, the farm bill needs to reward healthy foods and healthy farm styles. I have to bring up the fact that your daughter was just over in Mozambique because I'm really curious about how we are looking at climate change and how different cultures around the world are experiencing it. Have you had discussions with her? I know you went over and visited her there too. What did it look like through your eyes? Well, of course, the income level is much less. Mozambique is a very poor country, and there is a lot of starvation issues. There's been a lot more in the last couple of years because they've been in severe drought in large parts of the country. And so they find not only do people go hungry and do some people die, but for instance, a lot of families have to take their children out of school because they just can't afford even the the minimal amounts it is for school clothes and books. And more children are malnourished, which means they're not learning as well. Mm. One thing that even she's in a town of about 200,000 people, and even people that live in a town, most of them have a small plot of land, and they grow part of the food for their family, and they also supplement their income by selling some of the extra food. But these past couple of years, they have not been able to do this. So not only are they are not feeding their family, but they don't have supplemental income. So it really is a very big issue. When you're just living on the edge, it doesn't take much to make things a lot worse for you. Yeah, that's so true. And of course, we've seen that in our own country with lower-income populations that are indeed living on the edge. And then when we have a disaster and we have more homeless people and migration, even within our own country, we can see how climate issues really do touch all of us. Right. One thing my daughter noticed in Mozambique is that even though they have some of the lowest literacy rates in the world, she said she's never met a person, including the farmers, living way out in rural remote areas that don't have access to internet and newspapers, but she hasn't met anybody that doesn't believe in and accept climate change and know that their lives are really dependent on these conditions. And yet at the same time, she's seen this incredible culture of hospitality where they're just insistent on inviting her into the home and feeding her, even though she knows they might be going without food the next day because they fed her. Wow, so generous and so wise, so insightful. It's good to know how other cultures are thinking about climate. I think we all need to have all of our hands on deck. We only have a few minutes left. So I want to open this up to you. What do you want our listeners to know most about your work and how it interfaces with climate? I want people to get involved. And whether you have five minutes a week or 
half a day every week, there are things that all of us can do. And I think that all of us have passions that are being affected by climate. So if you're really interested in healthy food, you can find a group that's looking at agriculture and nutrition and climate. If you're really interested in clean energy, you can find groups that do that. But getting involved, reading about it, talking about it, and voting. So voting and working on elections is incredibly important of all times now. It's, it's an important thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. How do we handle situations where we are told climate, that's very nice, that's very important for us to talk about, but we're talking about jobs, right? We have to have the ethanol plant. We have to bring the coal workers back. We need to be doing fracking and all of these other drilling operations because jobs depend on it. How do we have these difficult conversations? Well, the amazing thing about transitioning over to renewable energies is that it does all those positive things. It actually grows jobs, even when you account for jobs that are lost in some industries. It grows the GDP. It grows our income. And that's been proven over and over again. There's been studies from the Treasury Department, from multiple reputable economic modeling firms, and we also had the experience of what's happened in other countries. So this transition does not have to be painful. And then on top of it all, it's actually improving our health because we're losing tens of thousands of people every year because of climate change and air pollution issues just in America. Wow. So we're having a conversation. We believe that climate change is real. And then we hear about state workers in certain states. I'll just throw out one, Florida, where state workers are not allowed to use the term climate change. How do we shift that? I mean, do we outright put our jobs on the line and say, no, climate change is real, it's serious, I'm going to talk about it? Or how do we circumnavigate those kinds of demands that we don't have freedom of speech? Right. That would be tough to be a state employee in Florida right now. But I think there are tons of people in Florida that are speaking out that this is a ridiculous sort of policy. And actually, some of the most outspoken people in the House of Representatives right now are representatives from Florida. And they were actually the ones that started the Climate Solutions Caucus, which now has 70 members in the House of Representatives. There's 35 Republicans, 35 Democrats. It's huge. And they are at the point now where they're big enough that they can really start voting and block and not feel like the lone man out in the field when they make a vote that other people might think is unpopular. Mm. I have a friend who works in sustainable ag, and she had gone to the climate discussions in Paris. And she said, the elephant in the room was the United States and how we were going to navigate around our power and our reluctance to truly engage and participate in making serious, important moves in our own society to impact and mitigate the effects of climate change. Well, the stance of the federal government is a little bit frustrating at this point, but I think the one great thing is it has done is really make the American people speak out. So we have the We Are Still In movement with the mayors and the universities and the states saying, no, we're going to honor the what should have happened with Paris. And I think it really has mobilized people to care. And so I do think that pendulum is going to switch. And I think that America can go on to be a leader in this issue. And I think if people just look at what we were able to do, take, for instance, during World War II, when we altered our economy, we grew our vegetables in our backyard, we totally changed our industrial system. 
We won the war, and this is a winnable situation, too. Well, on that positive note, I will assure our listeners that we will have several websites to go to. We don't have to fight this alone. And I think speaking about issues is really important. We all breathe, we all eat, we all need clean water, we all depend on a livable climate. So I'll provide websites where people can go for more information on how to get involved. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios, beautiful downtown Columbia. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lori Byron. She is a pediatrician, spent 27 years on the Crow Indian Reservation, and now that she's retired from the Indian Health Service, she continues to work as a pediatric hospitalist in a private hospital in Montana, and she is working largely on environmental issues, including a master's degree from John's. Hopkins on energy, policy, and climate. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for addressing this issue.